Hello, you are listening to Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts, a space dedicated to history, art, culture, politics, sociology, anthropology, and many other subjects. This episode is part of the Society and Politics in the Maghreb series and was recorded on November 23, 2020 at the Centre d'études Maghrebines Tunis Semat. In this episode, Jacob Mandi, Associate Professor of Peace and Conflict Studies, interviews Amal Al-Ubaidi, Professor of Comparative Politics at the University of Benghazi, about her research on non-state actors and state building in Libya after 2011. This podcast is part of the supporting critical research and strengthening scholarly capacity in Algeria, Libya and Tunisia project organized by the Centre d'études Maghrebines Tunis, CEMAT, and the Centre d'études Maghrebines en Algérie, CEMA, and funded by the Carnegie Corporation of New York. Well, thank you for joining us today, Amal. I'm very excited uh, to be talking to you. Um, one of the things I find really interesting about your research uh, is that you know there is a widespread myth that social and political research was impossible in Libya under Gaddafi. Can you tell us about your research that led to your dissertation and the 2001 book, Political Culture in Libya? Yeah, um, actually this is quite interesting because it seems that uh, looking at that period, I would say that uh, at uh, political science department, I think we have members of staff who've been graduated from uh, various university uh, during the 60s and the 70s, and to some extent to the 80s. So we were somehow following all the literature through the, 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 the stuff. And uh, actually my, my research on political culture and basically political um, uh, socialization by that time, I was really uh, interested of how uh, people um, uh, think about politics and how people or the attitudes of people towards numbers of issues, specifically in a, a regime like uh, Libya at that time. Uh, and I think from there, uh, I started just looking at the students around, even when I was uh, teaching, uh, before I go abroad for my uh, conducting my research uh, for a PhD, I was really focusing more on the students, how they think about politics. Somehow many people are reluctant even to exp express their views, uh, specifically when it comes to a political system, some of the ideas regarding uh, political participation, but in general, I think it was very interesting uh, uh, observation for me. So uh, I think that was my aim when I uh, started my PhD. Actually, I had already the, the topic, which is part of the uh, political culture uh, uh, approach. And I thought maybe that would be interesting approach to also to test the Libyan experience by that time. And uh, I remember, I think uh, I would say that um, it's very interesting that somehow uh, the research by that time was quite possible comparing to, uh, to the situation now. Um, although, of course, I mean, there were some restrictions regarding specifically when it comes to conducting uh, a survey research. I think this is, might be uh, impossible, but by that time, being a member of staff at University of Benghazi, and of course, my sample uh, mainly uh, uh, was at the university, mainly um, university students. I think that was a bit easy for me to deal with uh, such an issue. So at that time, I didn't need any permission. 
from any security, uh, which is normally this kind of uh, research you might need approval for, from some of other institutions anyway. But in general, I think uh, I would say that it was quite interesting and I wasn't the only case because there were many other colleagues as well conducted different uh, other research or topics uh, related to the political situation by that time. And also many non-Libyan scholars uh, contributed in the Libyan studies in different subjects. Um, for example, uh, I would, uh, for instance, I could just uh, uh, recall some of these names, uh, Lisa Anderson, uh, John Davis, uh, specifically when he stayed almost a year and a half with his remarkable work on uh, tribes in Libya, uh, when he stayed almost a year and a half in, uh, with the Zwaya tribe in Jadabia and uh, in Kofra. Uh, also, I would say Derek van der Waal uh, and many others, I think, at that time, um, contributed in the, in the Libyan studies in general. I think it was possible by that time. Uh, I would say that was quite interesting. And sometimes probably the current situation is rather uh, severe and difficult for us. Well, yeah, I mean, that does lead me to a question about how life has changed for Libyan scholars uh, since 2011. Uh, you just suggested it's become more difficult. Do you want to describe what life has been like? Yeah, I think uh, I would just add more when we talk about uh, uh, regarding the, the, the academic uh, life under uh, Gaddafi's regime. Um, well, I could identify some many challenges by that time. Uh, for instance, one of these issues was the Arabization of the higher edu education in general and banning all foreign languages, uh, specifically the English language since 1980s. So myself, when I, I started writing uh, in English just when I went, back, went to, the, to Britain for, to, to start my PhD. So I think I was one of those uh, students also which were victims of such, uh, such isolation somehow. Uh, the other point by that time, I would say that the isolation, I mean, the, the international sanctions um, of course, impacted has impact influenced the higher education in general, and even not just the international sanctions, but even before that, I think during the 70s and 60s, um, somehow the uh, Libyan academics seem to be uh, um, uh, isolated somehow from the academic uh, community. Um, uh, also, the uh, of course the travel restrictions uh, that specifically during the 90s. Um, so that prevented us from uh, conducting any activities or uh, academic activities uh, abroad. Uh, of course, I would also um, uh, emphasize on the poor libraries and uh, of course by that time lack of uh, updated uh, sources. But when we look at uh, the situation, I mean, uh, after 2011, uh, I would say that uh, Libyan academics actually suffered uh, and faced uh, many challenges the same as any other Libyan citizens. Uh, I would say that uh, one of our main challenges was security. Uh, of course, in the country in general uh, faced and still faces uh, significant security uh, challenges that uh, have resulted uh, in, uh, in, uh, in numbers of problems, I mean, like uh, 
um, uh, even troubling or uh, interrupting the, the, the daily um, uh, routine for the universities. And I would say also even uh, the situation or the civil war somehow affected physically, uh, I mean, uh, there was, if I could call it, a physical capacity which uh, dealing with, or at least I would say it's uh, substantial physical damage for many of these higher education uh, establishment in the country uh, due to the fight in 2011 or even after that in 2014, maybe in 2019. I think this is uh, in many cities and uh, towns, I would say that uh, severely actually affected by that. Um, I would say also, uh, uh, I would probably also the, uh, uh, of course, I mean, uh, there were many other consequences to the war, which has uh, affected, of course, the capacity of higher education in general, uh, the vandalism uh, of records and archives, and of course, libraries and in various campuses. I think this is an University of Bernasi, actually one of these uh, universities which severely uh, was actually uh, damaged. And even after that, when we started teaching, we were actually uh, having other alternative uh, locations in order just to uh, continue with the teaching process. Uh, in 2015 and 2016 uh, in many other uh, schools, actually. So I think this is, uh, was one of the problems. I would add also to that, actually, the uh, problem of, uh, I would say that uh, the question of uh, self-censorship as an academic. Normally, uh, I don't feel comfortable somehow because of all the security threats uh, myself. I. I have a brother which was uh, kidnapped, he's uh, a lawyer. Myself, uh, I went through uh, numbers of threats as well. So always I'm trying just to uh, compromise somehow or to find a way of conducting the research uh, and also uh, to keep safe. Uh, probably uh, the foreign, uh, foreign uh, scholars probably are more lucky than Libyans in that uh, regard. Uh, because they mainly they have more access uh, through their relationship with numbers of parties, uh, either in the East or the West. Uh, so I think somehow probably they've been, if they manage to find uh, who's going to protect them, they would, I think their research would be, uh, they would have uh, good opportunities of conducting good research. But in general, I think uh, I would say that uh, for Libyans, uh, although we've managed to uh, participate in numbers of research projects, uh, projects re related to the current situation or related to the transitional Libya, but again, uh, there are many problems, as I mentioned, I mean, the security, uh, lack of uh, confidence between, even if you want to conduct uh, an interview, uh, we might have some uh, obstacles regarding to arrange these kind of uh, uh, interviews or even to have, um, of course, a survey, although now, technically speaking, we could uh, manage that uh, through this new technology. So probably physically we are not really involved in that, but I think this is uh, interesting uh, observation regarding the uh, uh, comparison between uh, two eras anyway. Uh, so they have 
different um, uh, obstacles, but in general challenges, but in general, I think um, many of the uh, uh, academics and scholars managed somehow to, to be in the um, academic arena and they could contribute uh, uh, somehow in many of these uh, issues which uh, the country needed at the moment. That's uh, difficult to hear, but I'm glad that um, there seems to be some um, positive outlook for for scholars in Libya these days. Uh, in terms of your uh, your current research, what what is the focus? Yeah, I mean, as I mentioned, um, in general, I think uh, many topics in the different. Uh, I mean, some are continuation of my uh, uh, previous work, uh, like uh, gender issues, um, governance, other issues related to the transitional Libya. Um, and and uh, as uh, you may know that I'm focusing more in transitional justice, national reconciliation, um, some other issues related to uh, peace building and conflict resolution. Uh, again, also uh, I'm interested in migration and uh, security issues as well. Uh, but the current um, work actually was in governance and institutions, um, institutional in Libya and post or during the conflict time. And I think this is basically, uh, as you may know, that Libya now is a divided country and of course have many, many problems like these um, uh, institutional divisions, lack of security and many other um, aspects. Normally, I think this is challenge us as a Libyan and even maybe uh, non-Libyan scholars also to, uh, to target such issues in general. Ah, yeah, I think these are the main, uh, the main uh, topics which I'm currently uh, trying to, uh, to work on. And of course, I mean, my passion, uh, although many of my colleagues, maybe um, we, we have this long debate about the, the role of tribe and tribalism. I think this is, uh, again, at the moment I'm trying to focus on uh, tribe and tribalism from uh, gender perspective, but unfortunately, this needs more work and uh, field work at the moment. I'm not able to uh, uh, to to do it uh, with my current situation and being abroad. I think that's need more efforts to uh, to conduct such uh, research. Well, can I ask you then? Um, I mean, what maybe what you do know about the role of of tribes and local level governance? Because uh, Libya is often described as a failed state. Uh, and I, you've argued in various places that really it's, it's at the national um, level where you see a failure of leadership. But at the local level, uh, you see um, councils and tribal authorities have often filled the void of sovereignty uh, since 2011. Can you, can you tell us about that and give us some examples? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think uh, I would say that I agree that, uh, as you mentioned, that uh, Libya is always described as a failed state. And there are many elements uh, provided which can be uh, proved this, uh, this term and really relevant to the Libyan case. But I would say that usually I'm, uh, I'm trying to contribute through my own, uh, my own studies to the uh, uh, development of the future of socioeconomic uh, situation um, by, of uh, course, numbers of, uh, of ideas. And uh, as you mentioned that many of the studies prove that Libya is a uh, tribal society. 
And even in the time when, uh, during the time of Gaddafi, or of course, always you consider Libya as a tribal society. And uh, I, I would say that the collapse of Gaddafi's regime and also the, the political vacuum, which uh, was uh, left by, uh, by Gaddafi's regime and uh, the lack of, uh, uh, of course, uh, strong institutions and, of course, uh, the crisis and the problem with the, uh, the absence of a constitution as well, which uh, would uh, lead the country or at least at least uh, uh, describe the power and the numbers of, uh, of aspects of the Libyan uh, society. Uh, that also uh, affected very much the situation. So I think now um, uh, always I have to consider the role of non-state actors. And of course, tribe is one of the, these uh, non-state actors. And I could say that, of course, now, uh, due to the uh, uh, political vacuum in uh, which led by the collapse of uh, Gaddafi's regime in 2011, I think uh, tribes had their own role uh, through the Aruf or through uh, customary law and at the same time, I think through their machinery of uh, conflict resolution, they became a strong uh, actors at the local uh, at the local level in terms of solving problems at the at the individual level, or even at the uh, communities or societal level. I think this is very very uh, important. But the problem uh, with that. Uh, although they may they might have numbers of efforts, but uh, of course I think all these uh, all this contribution to a peace uh, agreement at the local level or I would say uh, conflict resolution at the local level uh, didn't reach to uh, a long. Um, uh, I wouldn't say that that was sustainable. It's just a temporary uh, effort. And of course, because of uh, any initiative needs some other support, needs the uh, state uh, support. I mean, here, uh, I would say that the security institutions, the judiciary, and of course, uh, many other uh, state institutions, which are now quite weak uh, to at least to implement many of these agreements. Uh, some of these tribes, actually, I would say, or local uh, tribal councils also managed to uh, even um, to take somehow uh, some of the uh, even agreements with uh, other countries or with other uh, states, uh, which is beyond uh, the state or the the uh, the central the central state. I think um, so. I think this is one of the problems at, uh, at the moment. But in general, I think there are uh, many of these uh, local council, even including also local council, they are trying somehow to have some social and uh, they try to also to involve in many of sorting many of the problems at, at the local level. Uh, but of course, there are many other challenges might face uh, these uh, groups uh, in the absence of the state institutions, of course. Interesting. You also mentioned that you're researching the role of uh, a different category of non-state actor uh, women, uh, particularly in the fields of peacemaking and transitional justice. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a, a little bit about, um, about what you found uh, and what you hope to explore in terms of uh, the role that women 
are doing uh, in terms of uh, grassroots peacemaking and transitional justice. Uh, because you know, if you look at national level politics in Libya, it's very male dominated. But I think at the local level, you have much more uh, participation with women. Yeah, thank you. That's a very interesting question, actually. But I would say that um, women in general, they are, um, are now more active uh, in, in many aspects, actually. They are part of many of the civil society groups. Uh, numbers of uh, associations were established uh, after 2011 in different um, fields and different aspects as well. And one of those actually, uh, reconciliation, mediation, and also uh, 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 transitional justice. But in the same time, I would say that uh, the presence of women uh, in, in such, specifically when it comes to uh, the local level of reconciliation, which I call it the local reconciliation, which mainly dominant by tribal leaders. Uh, to some extent, there were a um, number of uh, youth which are uh, part of some uh, civil society groups. But in general, I think uh, um, the presence of women at the local level, uh, it's rather small, the number is quite small, uh, comparing to their presence in many other, in, in the national uh, sphere at, at all levels, either in the higher education or even in the public uh, sector or in many other uh, fields, women are quite, uh, the presence of women quite uh, uh, visible. But the problem at the local level, I would say that uh, women needs a lot. And this is, of course, due to the, the cultural values regarding the participation of women in tribal issues. As you may know that uh, women normally excluded from the tribal uh, system, it's male dominant. Uh, women normally are not part of any kind of reconciliation process at the local level. Uh, although uh, one of my research on uh, local reconciliation uh, after 2011, uh, when I conducted some of the interviews with the tribal leaders who were influenced in, in such uh, local reconciliation in different parts, of the country, somehow they accepted that, uh, the presence of women, uh, but uh, with a limited uh, role. As they said, this is uh, not uh, culturally not acceptable, and uh, this is goes against uh, the custom. But in general, I think sometimes we need the women in case there are some cases which women has to be present so we need them, but not really in the process itself. And uh, I think now uh, there are numbers of civil society groups, I think, who are now dealing with many of the issues in empowering women in, in the, 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 the issue of uh, reconciliation or at least uh, the transitional justice. And of course, I think this is really interesting and important that women should be part of any process because women are the victims uh, of uh, the conflict. I mean, uh, uh, children and uh, women are, and of course youth, are uh, the victims of uh, any wars and conflicts. So I think nowadays women uh, should be part of any process. And um, of course, I would say also at the political level, uh, numbers of women were, were part of this Khairat agreement, so even they managed somehow uh, to be present in all the process at the dialogue. By that time, I think in, uh, in 2015, 
but unfortunately, this is, uh, did not lead, lead any women to be part of the uh, transitional, uh, to be at the, the, president, the presidential council, um, which was dominated by nine men. At the same time, also uh, in the recent Libyan uh, dialogue uh, forum in Tunis, I think uh, about uh, 17 women uh, were part uh, out of, uh, of 75. Um, uh, I think this is a very interesting number, and I think uh, women, uh, in my assessment to their role during the latest uh, dialogue uh, between different parties in, in Tunis, I think that was interesting, and at least um, they managed to issue a statement which is uh, issued by women and signed by uh, 17 or 16 women who participated in that uh, in the conference, and then also one of the main uh, points which they highlighted that uh, uh, women should uh, represent 30% of each uh, state or each uh, uh, the president of women should be 30% in any uh, future government or any other. Um, so I think this is quite uh, interesting somehow to find that uh, women are now uh, benefited from a uh, number of lessons and also from their own experiences uh, during the, la the last nine years or eight years. Well, that's, that's also very interesting to hear. Well, it seems we're, uh, we're approaching the end of the interview. And I just wanted to ask a, a question that's been on a lot of people's minds lately. And this is why the armed conflict, which uh, seemed to be unstoppable, came to a very, almost a very sudden end this year and that uh, a lot of the armed fighting has ceased and there's been a flurry of diplomatic activity lately. Um, why do you think uh, the conflict uh, stopped all of a sudden? And are you optimistic uh, that Libya is finally back on the path to uh, adopting a, or electing even a legitimate national government and uh, a constitution? Actually, that's what we hope, all Libyans actually hope to, to reach such point, I mean, because um, uh, the situation in the country, it's rather severe and people at the, at the ground, I think they are suffer most. And uh, the problem that uh, I agree with you that uh, it, it should be uh, now uh, taken in consideration in this situation regarding uh, lack of basic services for people and also uh, uh, this fight led into, uh, into nowhere, I think. It's not going to help the Libyan, uh, the Libyan uh, situation. Uh, it would, might lead uh, to more, uh, more conflict and more war, more, uh, 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 I think, many uh, problems. And I would say that uh, we witnessed that um, in the time of, uh, of COVID-19, I think that showed uh, that uh, a united government with strong uh, different elements, I think that would help a lot uh, the people. But again, in the, the military, uh, I would like to mention that uh, that's our hope that uh, this, the world would end. Uh, many parties would uh, agree into uh, a common ground on, the, on, on united Libya, but in the same time, I'm not really optimistic uh, because still we still have long way uh, to deal with the question of the constitution. I think this is one not solved 
problem. I think this is need to be sorted. And at the same time, uh, what we need now more, it's, uh, it's a clear vision uh, by all parties, uh, which led to a social contract. It would lead into uh, a peaceful and uh, stable Libya, uh, the future Libya. Yeah, well, we hope that uh, Libya has turned the corner. Um, well, thank you for uh, joining us, Amal. It's been uh, very enlightening, um, and we uh, hope to get an update in the near future. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Maghrib in Past and Present Podcasts. Other episodes are available on our website, www.themaghribpodcast.com, as well as on iTunes and Podbean. For more information on our podcasts, like our Facebook page, Maghrib in Past and Present Podcasts, subscribe to the CIMAT newsletter at www.cimatmaghrib.org or visit the webpage of the American Institute for Maghrib Studies. See you soon for a new episode.